Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy. And I'm Deblina Chakraborty. And even though October may be over, there's no harm in extending the thrill a little bit into November. We're not going spooky with this episode. We're not going scary. But it is a pretty intriguing mystery. And it's also a listener favorite. It's been pitched to us. I just scanned through my email to find a few names. It's been pitched to us by Daniel, Annie, Megan, Kate, and many others. And... No wonder. It's a great story. It features one of the best-selling authors of the 20th century, Agatha Christie, who, of course, is famous for timeless characters like Hercule Poirot and Miss Marple. She's known for stories like And Then There Were None, kind of a middle school reading list staple, plays like The Mousetrap, film adaptations like Murder on the Orient Express. She has a very interesting life in her own right. Today, more than one billion of her books have been printed in English, and she's been translated into more languages than Shakespeare. Christie fans celebrate her birth date with a week-long festival, going on treasure hunts, attending murder mystery nights. But what really gets Christie Buffs truly excited is the mystery that's smack dab in the middle of her own life. For a period of 11 days in 1926, the queen of crime disappeared, just vanished into thin air, just like a character in one of her books. And the disappearance brought out sleuths like author Conan Doyle. It made her book sales skyrocket. And naturally, it became an international news story. So we'll start with an excerpt from a special cable to the New York Times dated December 11th, 1926. It's even paced like a detective novel with its own clues. So it starts with the all caps headline, Police are baffled by Christie mystery. British search vainly for a week for a clue to American-born writer's disappearance. And then it goes on to the body of the article. Though it's a whole week since she disappeared, there is still no clue tonight as to the whereabouts of Mrs. Agatha Christie, the American-born writer of English detective stories. The country around Newlands Corner, where her car was found on Saturday morning, has been exhaustively searched by hundreds of police and volunteer helpers, and inquiries have been made far afield without success. A great deal of interest was excited by the revelation today that before leaving her home, Mrs. Christie wrote three letters. The first was to her secretary. The police thought it had been destroyed, but it had been found and handed to them. Its most significant passage was, quote, I must get away. I cannot stay here in Sunningdale much longer. The second letter was to Mrs. Christie's brother-in-law. This letter has been destroyed. The third letter was addressed to Colonel Christie himself and was unposted. Colonel Christie refused to reveal its content, stating it was of a personal note. So I think the person who sent this dispatch <laughs> might have had aspirations for um, writing detective <laughs> novels so. himself. But uh, I, I just thought that gives a pretty good setup for what was going on, how excited and interested people were about this story. And it really does set up the premise of the disappearance pretty well, too. Was this a murder? Was it suicide? The husband sounds kind of suspicious with this refusing to reveal the letter's content. Was it a publicity stunt? She is, after all, a best-selling author. But to understand why murder or suicide seem likely, why the husband seems suspicious, why this was an international story in the first place, we have to discuss 
discuss some of Christie's pre-disappearance life, which fortunately is pretty interesting in and of itself. So just to set the scene, in 1926, Christie was an immensely famous crime writer, but only recently so. She'd published her first novel, The Mysterious Affair at Styles, at age 30 in 1920. The New York Times headline calling her an American-born writer is a bit misleading, too. Christie, who'd been born Agatha Miller in Torquay, Devon, England, had an American father, a gentleman who didn't have to work, and who had married his English step-cousin. She was pretty thoroughly English, though. She grew up in a bustling country home. Her parents were busy socialites. She was much younger than her brother and sister, who were usually off at school. By the time she came around, her mother didn't really think kids should go to school or even really be educated. And she was doted on by her grandmothers. One of my favorite stories that was detailed in the Women in World History Encyclopedia about young Agatha was playing chicken with her grandmother. That's not what you think playing chicken like with cars or something. She'd actually pretend to be a chicken. Her grandmother would pretend to go to the store, pick out a young spring chicken, Truss up the chicken, put it in the oven, and then Agatha would be like, surprise, I'm actually the chicken. (laughs) Sounded like a cute game. She was, by all accounts, a very imaginative child, had a lot of imaginary friends, had a lot of stories that she would play out by herself. But by the age of her debut, you know, her sister had debuted in New York. She would have been expected to do similarly or debut in London. By that point, family fortunes had changed. Her father had passed away, and Agatha's mother really enjoyed travel. So the family ended up living in Cairo, and that's where Agatha had her debut to society. Kind of a nice hint at her later adventurous life, really. She published poems, wrote short stories, and a novel, and flew in a plane in 1909, and she turned down many proposals before she finally accepted one from Reggie Lucy. In 1912, though, she met a pilot, Archie Christie. They fell in love, and she wrote to Reggie to break off their engagement, and married Archie Christmas Eve in 1914, when he was home on a two-day leave from the Flying Corps. Agatha, who'd started the war working as a volunteer nurse, eventually went to work in a hospital dispensary, picking up a good understanding of poisons while she was there. In her downtime, she started a detective story, and that was The Mysterious Affair at Styles, which we mentioned earlier. And, you know, the, the war finally ended. She and Archie had a daughter named Rosalind in 1919. And then in 1920, she finally got that book published. And um, not too long after that, her husband had the opportunity to go on a world tour. She went with him. They visited South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, Hawaii, Canada. She kept writing the whole time, though. And even when they were back in England, kept at it, finally powering her way through her original five-book commitment to a pretty bad initial publishing deal before debuting the murder of Roger Ackroyd with Collins in 1926. And that was the story that really put her on the map, really made her name. She was popular before then, but she was a bestseller at this point. Privately, though, it wasn't a great year for her. No, it actually turned out to be kind of disastrous. Before the debut of her book, her mother contracted bronchitis and eventually died from it. Archie, who had been away when Agatha's mother got sick, pretty much just left her to deal with the illness and death alone since he didn't care much for trouble and illness. When he finally returned to his wife, he announced that he'd taken up with a much younger woman named Nancy Neal and wanted a divorce from Agatha. 
The couple separated, but leading up to the disappearance, they temporarily reconciled during what Christie later called, quote, a period of sorrow, misery, and heartbreak in her autobiography. Then we get to the fateful day, December 3rd. Agatha and Archie had had a fight at their home. After the fight, Christie went upstairs, kissed her sleeping daughter, and left the house at 9.45 p.m. in her car. Her car was later found, crashed down a slope, and abandoned near Guilford in Surrey. There was no trace of her, no hint of where she had gone, and consequently, soon hundreds of volunteers were joining the police search parties out looking for this famous writer. The Daily News offered a 100-pound reward for information on her whereabouts. That was a pretty considerable reward for the time. And a few theories quickly popped up. The first was that she was murdered or kidnapped. So, I mean, the circumstances certainly suggested something like that. Her car just abandoned. The disappearance of another somewhat high-profile woman named Una Crow just a few days later made this seem a little more likely. Or, judging by her situation with Archie, it seemed he could have somehow been involved. Had, had, and that strange note she left him. Yeah, had orchestrated. Yeah, had orchestrated her disappearance in some way. So that was the first uh, suspected cause of her disappearance. Another theory is that she had died by suicide. After all, the troubled relationship between she and her husband might have led to a mental state that would have caused her to do so. The death of her mother also compounded things. She was known to be in a troubled state, basically, so people assumed that this could be a possibility. Her car had also been found near the Silent Pool, which was a place with a history of death where she could have drowned herself. And then the final, probably the most unexpected uh, possible cause for her disappearance. She was missing on purpose. It was a publicity stunt. According to a New York Times article from December 12th of that year, her secretary dismissed this assumption out of hand. She said, quote, it is ridiculous. Mrs. Christie is much too quite a lady for that. She never for a moment would think of causing all this sorrow and suspense. Only in her books, right? Right. <laughs> so Christie enthusiasts even suggested that maybe they should look at the latest manuscript. Maybe there would be a clue in the manuscript. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, as Dublina mentioned, got into the mix. He took one of Christie's gloves to a medium to attempt to find it. You know, we've discussed. He's a noted spiritualist. Yeah, we've, we've discussed that before. Talked about that one a lot. Comes up in every other episode. <laughs> and Dorothy Sayers even got involved. She visited the disappearance site, worked it into a later story. So this is a, a huge international story with all these famous names involved and people really treating it with the enthusiasm of mystery Enthusiasts, I mean, to put it in a sort of silly way, looking for clues, looking at the missing gloves or the, the found gloves, all of that. And then suddenly, just like that, she was found safe and sound by a saxophonist. Yeah, she'd been at the Hydra Hotel in Harrogate, Yorkshire, since the day of her disappearance, staying under the name Teresa Neal. Yes, you, if you have been paying attention, that is the same last name as her husband's mistress. Her room was filled with detective novels borrowed from a local library, and apparently she had been a model patron there, chatting with other guests, even singing and dancing. She certainly never seemed to notice the newspapers, which had her face plastered all over the front page. (laughs) 
So two new theories developed. You know, what's going on with this lady? Why was she here? Why didn't she notice these things? Why didn't she realize she was missing and people were looking for her? The first was that she'd suffered memory loss from the car crash. The second was a little more sinister. She'd planned the whole thing, either as a publicity stunt, as we already discussed, or to mess with her husband to put all the suspicion on him and also to thwart his plans to spend a weekend with his mistress. Archie seemed to go with the the former assumption that this was a memory loss situation. Yeah, he collected her from the hydro and then released the statement, quote, my wife is far too ill to be worried. How she got to Harrogate, she doesn't know, except that she got there by train. She has a faint idea that she is Mrs. Christie and that I am not her brother, as she first thought, but her husband. So this seemed to imply that she was indeed suffering from memory loss and probably needed some medical help. Christie didn't elaborate on it herself at the time or in later life. She never really talked about this incident at all. In her autobiography, she described the episode like this. So ended my first married life. That's it. (laughs) She and Archie did divorce not too long after this in April 1928. But that's it. That's all she had to say about it. But she also wrote something that could possibly rule out the publicity stunt angle. Um, When she was on her way home from the spa where she had been found, crowds of people followed her train home. And she said of that, quote, I'd felt like a fox hunted my earths dug up and yelping hounds following me everywhere. Doesn't exactly sound like someone who wants the attention. Um, no, and then just the the statements from people who did know her well and knew her as a very private person who was doing quite well in her book sales anyway. If you kind of rule out that as a possibility, then what really happened? Why did she leave her car? Why didn't she realize people were looking for her? What happened? It's a good question, because at the time, not everyone bought that amnesia excuse. A Times article from December 19th quoted specialists and experts who suggested that if she had been in such a state, if she had had temporary amnesia, she would have been so obviously distressed, it would be noticeable. One quote from that article read, quote, Another authority whose contributions to the pathology of the mind have earned knighthood for him gave it as his firm conviction that a person suffering from loss of memory could not act in a normal manner nor mix with the public without arousing suspicions of insanity. Insanity. So in 2006, though, the expert opinion had changed a little bit and a new theory emerged, one that was put forward by biographer Andrew Norman and covered in The Guardian. And that is is that Christie could have been in a fugue state, which is a disorder defined by the DSM-4. It's also known as a psychogenic trance or reversible amnesia. Essentially, it's an out-of-body state brought on by stress, one where you can't recognize yourself as being you. According to Norman, quote, this kind of fugue state, which is much better understood these days, fits the symptoms that Christie showed during her stay in Harrogate. So namely, those symptoms would be packing up suddenly, ditching her car, sudden travel, essentially, taking on a new name and functioning under it, functioning under this Mrs. Neal, who I believe was supposed to be from South Africa, and seeming to the other hotel guests to be a totally normal lady. And then finally, not recognizing herself in photos. She just 
had completely taken herself out of her own identity. So this is one of the main theories today of what really happened to Agatha Christie. Although, of course, especially since she never really wrote about it, and maybe because she didn't know what happened anyway, we're never really going to know exactly what went down. But what we do know is that this bizarre interlude in Christie's life didn't slow down her output at all. She kept writing, and the year after her divorce, she traveled alone to Damascus and Baghdad. She took the Orient Express to Istanbul. She even visited the archaeological site at Ur. There she met Leonard Woolley, who was leading excavations and came back in March 1930 to see more of the dig. On that second trip, she met Woolley's assistant, Max Malawan, who was 14 years younger than her. And Malawan took Christie on a desert tour, and they finally ended up in Athens. When they got there, Christie got the bad news that her daughter was ill. And since Christie had badly sprained her ankle in Athens, Max decided to escort her all the way back home to England. And they were married by September of that year. And apparently had a very romantic relationship, too, for for the rest of her life. From that point on, Christy split her time between writing at home in England and writing abroad while she would travel with her husband on these archaeological digs. She got pretty good at field work herself, too. She would clean. She would document items. She would photograph finds. She would set up um, little desert on-site dark rooms to to develop her film and, and photos. And the Women in World History Encyclopedia quotes Alison Light in Forever England, talking a little bit about what it must have been like, just a picture of Agatha Christie during these days. She wrote, quote, In order to gauge what nostalgia in the work of Agatha Christie really means, one needs to imagine her a stout woman in her early 40s, in a hot tent or on a dusty veranda, looking across the desert and settling down to write about murder in the vicarage. <laughs> Pretty quintessentially Christie there. She did find an outlet for her non-detective self, too. I I didn't know this about her, but she wrote six novels under a pseudonym, um, romantic novels, not, not romances, but non-detective, non-thriller novels. She also juggled another amusing name problem. When Max Malawan was knighted for his work in 1968, Christie became Lady Malawan. However, she was made a Dame Commander of the British Empire in 1971, meaning that she was Dame Agatha in her own right. So they were a rare double-knighted couple, essentially. And she very carefully orchestrated her posthumous legacy, too. We talked a bit about her autobiography. We've quoted some things from that. She saved it to publish after her death, as well as the two books that killed off her two most famous characters, Poirot and Miss Marple. Even though she did have to adjust those plans slightly due to her last illness and publish Poirot's death a month before her own, she had some books that were able to come out after her death as she'd planned. One more thing about this legacy that she was concerned about and, and her privacy that she tried to maintain in life, too. In 2008... 27 reels of tape were found in her former home by a grandson. Yeah, the tapes included dictation of her life, some of which went into the autobiography. Christy 
this was significant because Christie didn't grant many interviews, so their discovery was a pretty big deal. It also seemed as though she reused some of the tapes since only the last third of her life was on them. So she didn't expect them to be of any interest to people. Um, so that'll be interesting to see as more and more of those are revealed. I think the grandson said he wasn't interested in having all of it come out because some of it is a little haphazard mm-hmm. um, in the autobiography presents things in a clearer way, but historians are also thinking, you know, there will be some changes to the autobiography, perhaps. So pretty cool find and um, a nice conclusion to a very strange story. Such a romantic, adventurous life, and then just this bizarro interlude in the middle. Yeah, which can never fully be explained. Um, Sort of fitting for her, though, I guess. It is. She she got to live her own mystery novel for, for 11 days there. This one wasn't just a letter, though, was it, Sarah? This one came with a nice package. Presents. Yes, we got presents from someone who is on a little bit of a journey, right? Someone who's on a journey around the world and sent us little souvenirs from her trip. Listener Tony from Hamilton, Australia, she wrote to say that she does travel a lot and uh, she sent us some fun things that'll make our Christmas trees a little sparklier this year. Uh, Both ornaments from Buckingham Palace. You know, the, the beef eaters in their hat. Mm-hmm. I, mine has a drum. Dublina's has a little Union Jack. And then some from her native Australia, too. Really pretty painted glass globes. We'll, of course, take pictures of these. Oh, and how could I forget? We got Buckingham Palace face towels. That's true. <laughs> in case we work up a sweat podcasting, you know, we can dab our foreheads a little bit. It's always good to have a towel on hand. <laughs> so thank you very much, listener Tony. Very sweet of you to think of us while you're traveling around the world. And any of you who have suggestions, places you've visited, you know, this Agatha Christie one, like I said, was a listener suggestion. Um, but a few other places, Ur, for instance, is one that has been suggested by listeners before. All you have to do is email us. We are at historypodcast at discovery.com. We are also at Mist in History on Twitter, and we are on Facebook. And if you want to learn a little bit more about some of the topics we talked about today, we have something that is sort of kind of similar to the fugue state idea that we talked about, right, Sarah? It is. It's called How Could Someone Mistake a Rubber Hand as Their Own? I edited it recently. Dublina co-edited it for me, so she's read it too. It's a really weird parlor trick, essentially, involving a rubber hand, but one that is also a true scientific experiment that has led researchers to some new insights about uh, body self-disorders. It kind of reminded both of us of this Christie fugue state um, out-of-body experience, and I think it'd be a fun read for those of you who want to learn a little bit more about what Christy could have been going through, or just want a fun parlor trick for your next party. Oh, we have yet to try it, so if anyone has tried it or wants to read this article and try it and let us know if it works. Yeah, we'll definitely. head to the magic shop after this and buy a rubber <laughs> hand and, and just get an experiment going up here in the studio. Yeah, but bottom line is, if you would like to read that, you can find it by looking on our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.